0: Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Centre for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Project Support Officer at the Centre for Japanese Studies and Researcher of Japanese War Heritage. This week we are joined by Dr Chris Perkins, senior lecturer in Japanese at the University of Edinburgh, who will be discussing Japanese-Korean cultural exchange in the immediate post-war. We will be reflecting on how media shapes popular notions of both nations by their respective peoples after more than half a century of colonisation. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome Chris, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you very much for having me. So before we start, I'd like to ask a little bit more about you, can you tell us about your fields and how your interests brought you there? Right. So I think like lots of people in
1: Japanese studies, I have been around the houses a little bit. So I started off doing Japanese anthropology and uh, education studies and spent a bit of time living in Japan and teaching English. Then I came back and I to the UK and I did a master's degree in international relations. And at that point, I thought, This is what I wanted to do and I wasn't sure that I wanted to continue with Japanese studies I was quite interested in lots of other things at that time. Um, So I did that and then ended up doing a PhD in politics um, down at Royal Holloway in London but for my PhD in politics they were my supervisor was really keen for me to make use of the language um, skills that I've developed so I ended up doing a PhD thesis looking at popular representations of Japanese nationalism, which is really, really interesting. And it enabled me to kind of connect together lots of different interests. So I was, I was interested in representation of um, foreigners in Japan. I was interested in social theory quite a lot. Um, and I was also sort of interested in trying to explain my own experiences in Japan. So I kind of wrote this thesis and that was great. And I thought, you know, I'd, um, I'd go into an international relations or a politics department. And luckily for me, uh, the job at Edinburgh came up and I applied and I, and, you know, I was very lucky and I was um, accepted for the position. Um, but I found myself in a Japanese studies department and the Japanese studies department was a bit different to my experience in a politics department beforehand. So lots of my interests, which were quite sort of, I suppose, theoretically driven, weren't um, didn't feel as relevant to the culture of the department that I was in. So I kind of panicked a bit and scrabbled around um, and I refocused my interests mostly on memory, cinema and um, conflict in Japan. And I've, I've written about I think that's probably one of the things that kind of runs through all of my work is that I'm quite interested in the way in which stories are produced about Japan and how they consumed and how they go on to um, shape and impact perspectives on the past. And so I've written a bit about um, anime. I've writ written a little bit about television, but I got very interested in the radical student movement in Japan in the 1960s. Well, now I write about it from the 1920s on to the 1970s. But for me, I was always really interested in this notion that Japan is apolitical. And um, then when I read all this stuff about sort of the radicalism of Japan in the post-war period and the pre-war period as well, I thought, okay, how does this, how do I square this story that I've been told about Japan, and the history that I'm looking at, and the way I approached that was to try and find out how the stories about the radical period in Japan in the 60s have been shaped by um, by the media, but also by kind of cultural interventions like cinema um, and also television uh, novels, all that kind of thing. So that's what my first book was about. I was sort of looking, I looked at a, a very particular new left uh, organization called the United Red Army. and I looked at how they, um, for want of a better word, spectacularly um, imploded in the early 1970s. And I also, then I looked at the way in which that story came to dominate the story of their implosion, came to dominate the narrative of the New Left in Japan more generally. And then how people in films, used films to um, interrogate and challenge that narrative later on in the 90s and in the 2000s. So where I guess the question then is, where do we get to Japanese Korean pop culture and the answer to that is when I was looking at the 1960s and looking at all this kind of radical performance that's going on one of the directors that kept on coming up of course was um, Oshima Nagisa, who um, I guess was the sort of representative filmmaker at the time and I stumbled ac- across a, a really odd documentary he made um, about a diary um, it was The Diary of Yunbogi. And I watched the documentary and I thought, well, this is really strange. Um, I'm gonna file that away and I'll come back to it later. And, and that's what I did. And then I was lucky enough to be invited to a conference on Japan korea relations and pop culture in Auckland. And I thought, okay, what can I write about? And this documentary came up again. So that's what I did. And when I started digging into the history of this documentary, it turned into a really, really interesting story about Japan-South Korea relations um, in the wake of normalization of relations in 1965. And I had all these really sort of interesting dynamics that I'd never thought about or never investigated. And, you know, that's then turned into a, a chapter in the book um, edited by Rumi Sakamoto and Stephen Epstein on popular culture and the transformation of Japan-Korea relations. so That's, I guess, in a nutshell, that's my story and how we get to this point where I've written this this book chapter. And it's very worth noting that I'm a bit of an academic magpie, so um, although I do have a, a particular focus on um, Japanese radical student politics, I can write about anything that really interests me. Um,
0: and it, I've just found this incredibly interesting. It's fascinating. You clearly have a very wide uh, portfolio of research experience. So when it comes to relations between Japan and Korea, they're often given an, a negative light in the media through the context of Japan's historical occupation of the peninsula. Do you believe the hostile rhetoric heard from politicians on both sides reflects the sentiment of the people? And if so, how does cultural exchange occur in this context?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think think that's a cracking question. Um, And I've thought about this a lot. And I reckon, you know, the sort of the glib answer is that it's really complicated. Um, But I think so when I was thinking about how to sort of answer this question um, you know one of the, one of the parts of this okay so how does cultural exchange occur in a context of animosity and I reckon one of the answers to that is that events happen stuff happens and because stuff happens publics get interested in investigating sort of where that you know, the the, uh, the origin of that event. So in the example of the, the diary that I wrote about, we I missed mean, this diary, I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit later, but this is a, a diary written by a street virgin that um, goes into 11 editions in 1965 in Japan once it's published. And the question is why? You know, this is very, very strange. And the answer is, well, um, 1965 was normalization of relations between Japan and South Korea, and Japanese public were really, really interested in South Korea all of a sudden. There was a dearth of media to consume, and this diary comes along, and everybody goes, right, I'm gonna read that, and that'll tell us about this new nation that we've started to construct a relationship with. And I think um, when you sort of move into some more contemporary times, we have a series of events: uh, the, the ninety eight, um, so the nineteen eighty eight Seoul Olympics, the um, the nineteen ninety eight decision of South Korea to allow Japanese cultural goods to be imported. Before that, it was illegal. Um, the two thousand and two FIFA World Cup, which is jointly hosted by Japan and South Korea. So all of these things are happening, and every time something like this happens, um, people go, okay, well, I want to, I want to get to know um, this new. new group of people, uh, this new nation that that we're building a relationship with. How can I do that? Well, I do that through consuming popular culture, because that's what's at hand. And then sort of taking that a little bit further, you know, I was thinking about this question in terms of, you know, is it the hostile rhetoric of politicians reflecting the sentiment of the people, or are they stirring things up? And I think that Again, you need to push it a little bit further and make the question a little bit more, I um, don't know, nuanced. I suppose so. One way we could look at this process and say, that, well, media circulation between South Korea and Japan is a good thing. It brings people closer together. It helps them imagine each other better. It breaks down barriers. Um, it helps people overcome history. Um, constructs dialogue. All those lovely things. And I think. You know this is the sort of rosy glow version of globalization and I reckon that there's a lot of truth in it. and there'll be lots of evidence that the circulation of this media is helping to break down barriers and is bringing publics together and of so on the flip side then you can say all right so what are these politicians up to well the cynic would say they're just stirring up things um, and they're doing it for political reasons. They want to get re-elected, so they point to the body um, and they say, "Elect me, and I will I'll keep you safe from that body." And, and of course, the historical tensions between Japan and South Korea make this easy. But again, I think that's a bit too simplistic. Um, in that, I reckon we need to deconstruct these binary oppositions between the people and the government, and in particular, just look at that if we look at the people I think we need to disaggregate that idea and think more about different publics that are constituted in different ways and they have different values and sort of from from my reading and again I sort of have to stress that I'm not an expert on this if it's something that I'm very interested in um, and I've come to through my research um, on the sort of the history of 1965. Um, but I'm not an expert. But the, the research that I'm, I've am been looking at seems to suggest that um, we can't just think about Japan and South Korea, we have to disaggregate these, these publics. And I think a really nice example of this is um, Stephen Epstein's discussion of K-pop idols um, and the Japanese flag in the book that my chapter appears in So um, Epstein is one of the the editors of that book. And the chapter is really interesting because it talks about how you have um, Korean pop idols that are incredibly popular in Japan. And they're doing the work of being um, international commodities and ambassadors and almost compatriots, for the Korean nation going over to Japan and spreading the culture. But they these pop idols can be very, very quickly and easily chastened um, for acting uh, inappropriately. And one of the things that Epstein focuses on is um, pop idols in association with the rising sun Japanese flag. And he lists lots and lots of examples of how sort of unwitting pop, pop idols have been caught with um, iconography in, in the shape of the, the rising sun Japanese flag, which is associated with Japanese war memories, and absolutely got pilloried um, in the media for it. And when we actually look at what, you know, look at this media, yes, the mainstream media will be um, involved, but it's primarily netizens um, in South Korea who are watching and monitoring and policing the activities that South Korean pop idols when they are over in Japan or sort of looking at the way in which they're. They're constructing our identities as representatives
0: of South Korea. It seems quite surprising that, uh, that these K-pop idols could have such a lapse in judgment um, to be wearing the rising sun on their clothing and uh, in their merchandise. Uh, yeah. I was talking with Dr. Giulio Pugliese last week about Japan's relations with their neighbours and he told me how Koreans... Have animosity towards Japan ingrained in their cultural identity when they were rebuilding their nation following half a century of colonization. So, to what extent is it, is this fresh in the minds of young Koreans? Do they do they associate Japan with the empire, or is it just is it totally separate from that now? Do they think of Japan more in terms of its popular culture than they deal of its historical atrocities?
1: Well, again, I think that you have to be careful not to sort of lump everybody together here because you'll have groups of young South Koreans who will have constructed their identities around, um, you know, preserving the um, the purity of Korea um, and preserving the sort of what they see as the integrity of, of this narrative of victimization at the hands of the Japanese so that whenever they see something that transgresses this narrative, they're gonna be incredibly vocal in um, sort of chastising the person who they think is going transgressing but I think also there are going to be people out there who are just having fun and they're, they're going to be sort of getting themselves in situations where there might be a Japanese flag in the background or you know one of the examples that Epstein points is somebody who's wearing a t-shirt that just happens to look a little bit like a Japanese rising flag but like it actually wasn't and because they were you know, not completely on their guards, and they happen to wear something which could be mistaken for this. They find themselves, you know, being subject to um, all of this um, criticism online. So, I reckon it would be. I mean, I completely get the argument that anti-Japanese um, sentiment is to an extent ing- ingrained in um, culture, but that also suggests a model of culture which you know you can't change. So once it's there, it's it's done, right? And it also. Suggests a model of culture which is monolithic, and I and I'm not sure that that's right. I reckon yeah. culture is always a process of negotiation, um, yeah. and it's also always a process of policing. And I reckon you know these kind of examples uh, are examples of where you might see the people going out and um, being associated with these images, and probably not really caring that much, not thinking it's a big deal, you know, um, maybe because. They didn't notice, or because it's not a Japanese flag, or because they're looking at it and seeing not um, Japanese uh, colonial war memory, uh, but they're seeing it
0: associated with, I don't know, Yankee bikers in the 1970s. My research specialty in culture tends to be in heritage, Mm -hmm. which is a much more top down kind of culture and uh, much more dominance uh, when you're actually exploring the country. In my time in Seoul, I was struck by the uh, very visible anti-Japanese sentiment in much of the architecture. You would have mm. uh, models of Do- the Dokdo Islands in the central Seoul tube station to stating that it's not Japanese territory, it's Korean territory. Mm. Um, you, I would go to... Uh, Korean barbecue restaurants, and it written on my little napkin would be Dokdo is Korean territory. And <laughs> yeah. It would be everywhere. I was just, I couldn't. I was surprised by how it was. It was just so present on so many levels, which doesn't seem to be the case in Japanese culture. At least there not much uh, anti-Korean rhetoric uh, on their disposable napkins. <laughs>
1: yeah, um, I think that. I think if you want to want to go and look for anti-Korean rhetoric in Japan you can find it pretty quickly um but maybe it does manifest in very very different ways and I think look I, um, I think you're right of course you're right that um these territorial disputes and in, you know in particular the comfort women issues are incredibly important um constitute constituted parts of South Korean national identity and um, there's no doubt about that but I suppose what what I'm trying to say is that Yes, it's omnipresent, but it's not determinative, right? And I think that although you can have all of these, you know, they feel a little bit like um, sort of Michael Billig's idea of banal nationalism. It's just kind of floating around all the time. And it's these little flaggings that are are reinforcing a particular sort of understanding of identity vis-a-vis Japan. But, you know, people tend to transgress these sorts of injunctions all the time. Um, whether by accident or um, because they don't care or because they don't want to do on purpose, and to be subversive. And I think what, what I found quite interesting about sort of Epstein's discussion is that, um, you know, it, it made me think about the way in which sort of different constituted publics so or public like netizens, um who are particularly sort of wedded to these these ideas of protecting sort of Korean national integrity can have a, a voice which is so amplified and so powerful that it can lead to these sort of very public apologies from idols once they get, um, you know, once their transgressions are outed and, and there might be very minor transgressions as soon as you one picture on Instagram, and that becomes like the biggest theme in the world. But I think when I was thinking about this also, I was sort of thinking about like, the, the tension between, you have these cultural flows going between Japan and Korea and, Again, you, you might think that these cultural flows are going to be sort of erasing the border just by the friction of the flow itself. But these performances of contrition by the, the idols when they get outed by um, particular consuming publics it seems like that performance itself is again reinforcing the, the boundary. So there's like this w- weird sort of double mechanism going on. I don't want to come across as, as, as dismissing, you know, the power of these narratives in, in Korea. But I do think that it's important to sort of to realize that I, I don't think you can aggravate everybody all the time. I suppose that's what I'm trying to say.
0: So to move on to your recent chapter, you recently published a chapter looking at post-war relations between Japan and Korea through a book titled The Diary of Yunbulgi. Uh, could you explain the book a bit here and describe the impact you believe it had?
1: Yeah, sure. And um, so the book itself, it was actually written in 1964 um by a poor south korean young boy um lee Bok, who was living in um just on the outskirts of daegu and this kid um was living in pretty desperate conditions so his his mother had left and we don't really know why his father was an alcoholic and very ill um, and he had um two siblings uh, a a younger sister and a younger brother and he was going into school and doing his best, but he was also selling gum on the streets of the, the city in which he lived. And so the story goes that he was, you know, showing some um, altitude horizon. So the teacher said, Why don't you keep a diary? So he, he kept this diary. And it turned out the diary was seen by the teachers as a really interesting chronicle of, of this child's life and sort of showed how he was, even though he was battling against all of these terrible circumstances, he was managing to do something with his life and in the end, the diary was serialized in a Korean newspaper. And it was made into a film as well in South Korea and and that film went on to win the Blue Dragon Awards in 65, which is quite the accolade. And as a sort of interesting aside, the film then seemed to have disappeared until it turned up again in, in a Taiwanese archive with the sort of Chinese subtitle burnt into it. That's the only version you can get hold of at the moment. Anyway, so that that film was made and that's all very, very good. Um, But then sort of 1965 comes along and you have normalization of relations between South Korea and Japan. And, you know, like I said at the beginning, this event provokes massive interest in all things South Korea. And before then, there hadn't been much interest in Korea at all. And if there had been interest, it was usually, again, sort of animosity. Um, so this book is sitting in, in South Korea, and you have um, sort of a constellation of factors that come together to get the book published in Japan. One of the factors is you have the publisher who himself, I think, who is Sanichi Korean, and he was really interested in getting this book over to Japan and translated so that uh, the, the Japanese people could come to know his homeland a bit better. But there's also this the guy, the translator, and Skamoto, who was he was working with was in Osaka and he was working with Koreans there and he was very very interested in the Korean languages putting together a, um, a dictionary and he found out about this book and he was um, asked to translate it and he didn't really know very much he you know he was working on his Korean but it wasn't very good um, so he, he got the book he translated it um, and he was working with people in Europe and in South Korea and when it was finally published it was absolutely eaten up by the Japanese public, and as I said at the beginning, uh, it went into about eleven editions in the first year, and it was the best-selling book of the year. And so, one of the reasons that it was really successful is there was already a template for it. So, about ten years beforehand, a diary had been written by a Zainichi Korean girl living in Japan, and that had gone off, and that had been incredibly popular, and that had been made into a film as well. So, there was always a, already a template for this type of um but also of course it, it was actually the first um south korean book to be translated and published in japan so that was also an accolade that made um, people want to to buy it but i i mean i i didn't know very much about the, the book itself until um i'd done a bit of research into it uh, um, to try and understand the documentary film that i was looking at the documentary is such a an odd thing and it's available on YouTube. So if you go off on to YouTube and Google the diary of Yonbogi and um, Oshima Nagasai, you can you can watch it in full if you so want to. It's only about 20 minutes long. And it's so odd, it's um, effectively a load of still photographs that have been um, put together by Oshima um, with a narration. So in in I think it was 1964, he'd been over in South Korea and he'd been traveling around taking photographs and he was trying to get to know um, sort of the real Korea. And and if you watch his films, he he has this obsession with Korea and colonial, the colonial legacy of Japan. So he was taking all these photographs and he brought them back and then normalization happens and he goes, crikey, I need to make a documentary about this. What have I got in terms of resources to do so? And he looks at these photographs and goes, okay, I've got these photographs and we've got this diary. So what can we do? And he kind of smushes them together um and he made this um what almost looks like a powerpoint presentation using black and white photographs with a voiceover and whereas the diary is sort of a story of um a boy struggling against um adversity to sort of realize himself and there's quite a positive message in there Oshima's version of the diary is almost solely focused on the poverty of um the living conditions of the children that he found when he was in South Korea so he's got just reams of photographs of children um and then the kind of classic photographs of almost like what you'd um, associate with sort of more contemporary photographs of areas of poverty so lots of sort of naked children covered in, in dirt distended bellies, that kind of thing and what the documentary does is it changes the story of the diary into a story of just pure Sort of abject poverty and the need to rise up against that poverty. And the narration for the documentary is very, very interesting because um, obviously the diary is the voice of the child, so the child has agency. But the documentary is the voice of an unidentified Japanese narrator who is listening to Yun Bongi's story, but also narrating that story back to the child and creating a story around the child. And when you look at what that's, where that story seems to go, it says, okay, so, you know, you live in poverty. Your life is very, very difficult. What can you do? And the answer seems to be from the narrator, well, you, can, you have to rise up. You have to fight. You have to um, you know, hold the authorities to task. And as the narrative proceeds, we see more and more pictures of student radicalism in South and uh, pictures of this child seemingly watching and learning and thinking and um, developing a political consciousness. And when I was re- watching this I was thinking okay so this this is really interesting because this bill has come out um, in the wake of AMPO in 1960 which was a sort of mass presentation, um, mass protest against the passing of a security treaty between Japan and um, the United States of America or the revision of that security treaty and it was incredibly divisive and it was seen as this incredible moment of grassroots um, politics in Japan and it seemed to have passed by 1965 and um, the radical politics although it was simmering and beneath the surface and would come out again in the late 1960s in 64-65 was kind of feeling that you know, have we had our moment and what the, the documentary seems to be doing is saying to the Japanese public look at South Korea look at what these guys are suffering look at the history of radicalism. Let's form a community with these, um, these people. Let's form a new imagined community between us who have also been oppressed by a government, us who have also been misled by a government, us who um, remember what it was like at the end of the war. And look at these images, don't they look just like what Japan looked like at the end of the war? And let's regain our radical
0: political consciousness and, and start fighting again. I was going to ask that Japan itself had experienced a lot of poverty in the immediate post-war. There's famous pictures of Osaka, which was totally burned down Mm -hmm. in the war, people living in shacks. Um, And that must have been a point of um, relatability for Japanese reading that book, I imagine. You're absolutely right. Um, You're absolutely right.
1: And I think there's some really, really interesting things about that because one, again, you can go back to, to what are these cultural flows doing? And, and in one sense, they are absolutely bringing people together because you're now seeing in Japan, you're now seeing the Korean people, you know, reading Korean voices. But I think one of the constitutive elements of the relationship between Japan and, and Korea as a sort of legacy of colonialism is always this weird temporal lagging between Korea and Japan. So where, you know, Japan, was the first to modernise, industrialise in the face of um, Western imperialism. Japan's whole story about, well, the story it told itself and the story it told its colonies, about the war period was only Japan can safeguard Asia, and Japan is a repository for everything that's good about East Asia, but it's also taking all the best of the West so Japan can um, fight on our behalf. Of course, this was <laughs> incredibly of problematic for a million different reasons, but It was always the case that what you know, even uh, in the pre-war period, whereas um, Korea was part of the Japanese Empire, Korea was also sort of temporarily set behind the Japanese Empire in terms of civilization, and and Koreans had to catch up. And I think what you see interestingly in this this diary is, um, or the film of this diary, is the same sort of narrative coming out. It's like, look at south korea now south korea now um and this is sort of 1965 looks like japan at the end of the war remember how awful that was guys remember how that made everybody feel and animated people and remember how angry it made us at our governments. rekindle that feeling so it's sort of a, a way of trying to access Oshima Nagasa is kind of get the Japanese people to access a set of emotions that might have been dulled in the 1960s because of the income doubling scheme and everybody's wages are going up and you know TVs and all that lovely stuff are happening but it's a kind of there's also like um, when you look at the commentaries around the diary because the diary is on the top top 100 books that you must read um, list um, put together by the National Diet Library and if you look at some of the, the discussions around newer editions of the diary now a lot of them are kind of, kids today need to read this diary so that um, they can um, reclaim what was lost to Japan through in, um, economic development, economic development in, the, in the 1960s through to, to now. Um, so Korea becomes this repository for all these values that Japan seems to have lost because it marched too far ahead with its sort of westernizing, industrializing, mission. And actually, in a kind of really perverse way, aren't the Koreans really lucky that um, their progress was retarded because of our colonial um, interventions? That's awful. Um, and it, it's a really, really complicated and problematic set of statements that are embedded in this story.
0: Um, and they just keep on coming back over and over again. Yeah, just, it seems very interesting that the memory of poverty becomes a common point that can replace the memory of war or colonialism.
1: You're absolutely right, because, I mean, I think, and it's strategic, right? I think also what Orshaman Ex is trying to do is he's trying to assemble a new public through this piece of media, and he has to find new points of reference new, and new um, ways of constructing identities, and these identities, then they, they become sort of linked to like, where is the shared experience here, or maybe the shared experiences that we were both, and misled by government and that idea then sort of is attempting to negate the very very difficult hierarchical relationship between japan and korea from the war before the war during the war and that goes on to yeah, the present day also.
0: one of the most controversial legacies of the war is the zainichi koreans uh, that is to say japanese nationals descended from koreans who emigrated some voluntarily some forcibly to japan during its imperial days, who often find themselves caught between the two cultural identities of Korea and Japan. There have been many cultural productions by Zanichi Koreans addressing this, such as Min Jin Lee's book Pachinko, uh, Yong Hee Yang's film Sona, The Other Myself, and Yan Yoon-ho's action film Fighter in the Winds*, to name a few. How do Zanichi productions fit in with Japanese and Korean cultural exchange?
1: It's a cracking question. It's a really hard one. To answer well, at least for me, I can give it a shot though. And I think that again, when I was thinking about this, my first response is they're incredibly important in um, providing narratives and giving voice and adding texture and visibility to silenced experiences. And that's just just state. I think that's just a statement of fact. But it made me kind of reflect a little bit on my own so experience of consuming this kind of media. And I don't know if you've seen or heard of the film Go. Uh, I'm not sure if I have. Yeah, so this um I'm kind of I'm, I suppose I'm now getting old, right? So most of my sort of media reference points are sort of in the 2000s, but um <laughs> Go Go was um film directed by Yikesade Sao in two thousand one and it was based on a novel by Kanishiro Kazuki, who himself was Korean. And back in two thousand one, you know, I just where was I? I was doing my you know, I've done a Japanese degree. was doing a Japanese degree. I didn't know very much about what was going on. I watched this movie and it's about a high school boy who is Zainichi himself and he goes to a school that's associated with uh, the North Korean Association for uh, Zainichi Koreans. And it's about his life and um, how he kind of leaves that school and he goes into a mainstream school and falls in love with a Japanese girl. And it was amazing. I absolutely loved it. It's a fantastic film, I, you know, so anybody who is interested in sort of this, this kind of topic, but also just likes a good movie, should go and watch it. Um, and when I watched it, I was like, wow, this is incredible. I never knew about you know, all of these um, really complex and um, difficult identity politics in Japan. I think there was an element of, well, Japan's some wondrous in it kind of thinking with me back then, because I was just starting my year uh, my journey into Japanese studies. So I watched this and, you know, one of the things about the film is you've you've got this um, very individualistic, very cool Zainichi Korean, who's who's trying to pass as well as at some point with his Japanese name. But the the narrative is very much about him denouncing all of the different politics that you find surrounded by, uh, surrounding um, Zainichi identity in Japan. Um, He denounces the the North Korean associations, South Korean associations. He hates the idea of being labelled as Zin and the whole sort of narrative is just just treat me as me. You know, I'm I'm an individual, I have my own my own narrative and I'm in control of that. And it's sort of through that um, you know asserting that that he you know overcomes difficulties with this girl that he meets and etc etc etc. So I was thinking about that, and then I ended up reading um, an article by Record called Kureishi Ichiro. It's, it's in a really good book, and it's by Son Riang and um, John Liu um, about Zainichi, Korean cultural production. And he's got quite an interesting take on this film because he, you know, he says, right, it's fantastic in the sense that it's producing these narratives, but at the same time, it's asserting, um, in asserting this individualist approach it it kind of um rejects any form of collective identity whatsoever as the way of solving sort of the identity problems of Zainichi Koreans in Japan. And in a sense that also is very problematic because you know questions of history and connectivity and identity seem to get pushed to one side and it comes almost like it's like neoliberal project of say, well just be you, everything will be fine. So I mean I think that sort of reflecting on that film and Um, and these arguments. I think that these scientific productions are absolutely you know absolutely important Um, but we need to go back to again how are they being read, how are they being consumed, what kind of conversations they're um, provoking and again that's sort of what I'm quite interested in is we we have these narratives in front of you but the narratives that we, we read or we watch they don't determine the way in which they're used later and I think what well, sort of the challenge now for a lot of scholarship is actually to go off and trace this stuff um, find out how it's talked about and um, sort of whether or not um, we are seeing sort of, you know, whether or not we're seeing change based on these productions. So, you know, unfortunately, I'm not able to sort of address the, those individual films themselves. So they're kind of my thoughts on that, about what we need to do to understand it better, at least.
0: Looking back at more um, historical media representations, as a colony, Koreans were portrayed in a derogatory racist caricature by imperial Japanese media. Uh, through this post-war exchange of culture, was this image of Koreans rehabilitated in the post-war period? Sort of, yeah. <laughs> um, it's very
1: difficult. I mean, yes, absolutely. I, I, I don't think you'd, you'd, go, you know, you'd be walking around Tokyo and asking people about what they think of uh, South Korea, and, and that it pull out some sort of propaganda from <laughs> the 1930s or 40s. But sort of thinking at it historically, after the war, a lot of the, you know, we had all these sort of black markets popping up, and um, very quickly the, the story was that these black markets that were popping up were being controlled by Korean gangs that were funneling money away from the Japanese and uh, exploiting. Um, there was, lots and lots of narratives um, emanating from all over the place um, in the post-war period up till sort of about the, I guess, mid-1950s, which were, sure. these uh, Korean organisations and Korean in Japan will destabilise Japan and we need to get rid of them. I think when we moved into sort of the 1960s, there was, there was a sense of almost apathy in the in general public. Um, and then, of course, you have these kind of little booms where people are very, very interested in skin sort of Korean things, so the boom around 1965 normalization later on, sort of the booms around the Olympics and things like that. And I think, yeah, I mean, of course, the the stereotypes have been dispelled to a certain extent, but there are still like all these lingering ideas about, um, again, this kind of temporal relationship between Korea and Japan. And I think that's something that is definitely continuing is this idea that Japan leads in south korea follows that hasn't gone away and um in a sense, i think that's sort of one of the one of the that's quite quite interestingly linked to the one of the other things uh, um some of the questions that you sent me which is about the sort of the challenge to japanese pop culture dominance in in east Asia and, and globally from sort of new south korean pop culture also fits into this narrative of you know what we japanese did that first, and now the South Koreans have basically taken our template and they're having a go with it, and that's that's great. But we've moved on to better or other things, or you know, the narrative in Japan is, and now what we're going to do, and it kind of fits into this victimisation narrative. Oh, poor Japan, poor Japan's getting beaten by everybody in the world, and South Korea has stolen all our ideas and doing the better. Poor Japan. <laughs> so um, I think whereas maybe the. Well, absolutely, the very, unless you're kind of hanging around on four chans or, or ni sorry, the really vociferous, very horrible images of South Korea have fallen away to certain extent in Japan. I think a lot of the sort of lingering sense of superiority is absolutely still there. Mm. Um, and the sense that <laughs> the sort of a mixture of super, superiority and woe with us that you know, they're just copying us and beating us at our own game. You know, and that's not particularly um even that that's not particularly something that is just about japan you can think of some of the narrative coming out of the states at the moment about you no know, chinese are copying this and beating this our own game woe is us um, i think this is sort of half
0: the course but there is that dynamic between japan and really, south i think that's lingered on that leads on to uh, the last question i want to ask for this episode Is there anything that other imperial nations can learn from Japanese-Korean cultural exchange in reconciling their relations and their notions of formerly colonized countries? Bit of a wild card there, but...
1: Yeah, it's a tricky one, eh? I mean, I suppose my my response to that is, has Japan-Korea popular relations reconciled their... you know, reconciled these two nations? And I reckon the answer is maybe not so much or at least least if that has happened it's it's happening in complex ways crikey i'm not sure i i I have a a useful answer to this question other than i think what we need to do is we need to keep on sort of tracing the impacts of these different popular culture products and look at them in in the round in their complexity and think about the ways in which they might be bringing together and distancing at the same time and I think it's it's only when we sort of sit and ask some really hard questions about that. I think people like Gilbert um, um you know, started this program research back in what, so the 2000s. I think that's something we still need to do. I think one <laughs> really one thing that everybody can learn from Japan is that once uh, a national government says something's cool, it's not cool anymore. Um, and I think that was one of the problems with the Cool Japan initiative is that you have this wonderful popular culture coming out of Japan it's going around the world and was doing really, really interesting things. And then a load of sort of great bureaucrats came along and said, yeah, this is great. Aren't we really cool? And started talking about it. And then everybody went, nah, it's not cool anymore. And <laughs> that's when they started you know, looking at South Korean popular culture because it had that sense of um, dynamism and well, effervescence that, the Japanese one is had sucked away by its government. But um, I think one of the other things to, to note with this is that if we look at the Japanese case, these booms end, you know, and, and the question is what's left? What are the long-lasting connections that have been constructed after the booms happened? And um, if, any, if we're going to learn something about it, it's maybe the, the boom itself is great um, and it's wonderful for um, the companies that are involved and for the sort of projection of a particular national image. But unless there's a lot of work going on underneath to make sure that sort of the connections that are created through, the, through that thing, um are institutionalized and live on a bit longer, then it might just be a flash in the pan. So I guess that's my two cents on that. Well,
0: it's been an insightful episode. Thank you for all your answers, Chris. It's been a pleasure. No, thank you very much for the great questions. You can find Chris's research profile in the description below. You can read more about his research in his twenty twenty chapter The Diary of Yunbogi and Japan Korea Relations. Join us next week when we will be in discussion with doctor Lola Martinez on Akira Kurosawa versus western cinema. Thank you for listening.